Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 47 and praise to the great King. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true and that it, it teaches us about who you are and what you're like and about so much more. So Lord, as we come now to your word, I pray that you would use this and know that you do because Isaiah 55 11 says that your word will not return without void. Meaning Lord, that you will take your word and plant it deep in our hearts and our minds. And so I pray Lord, that at our time in your word, that this word from your word would uh, plant be, be planted in the fertile soil bed of our hearts that in the midst of all the challenging times and the difficulties that we all face, that these words that we're going to consider from your word now, that they would be planted deep in our hearts and our minds and that our response to, now to your word would be one of worship. So, Lord, take your word, help us now as we open it, as we study it, as we discover more of who you are and what you're like. Take it, Lord, and use it in our lives for your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 47. Psalm 47 says this. Clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us, on nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. In November 13, 2010, a crowd of shoppers were enjoying lunch at the food court of a shopping mall in Niagara, New York. The sound system began playing Hallelujah Chorus from George Friedrich Handel's Messiah when a woman holding a cell phone suddenly stood and began singing in a beautifully trained operatic voice. Hallelujah, 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 she rang out. And then a young man in a gray sweatshirt stood on his chair and chimed in, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. A well-dressed couple uh, stood on a chair near an ATM. They joined in and they followed by another couple and a maintenance man and carrying a yellow wet floor sign, hallelujah, hallelujah, 
Hallelujah. More and more people from their tables, people of all nations, races, and walks of life began singing. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, they sang. And so more came from them all, and a great choir surged to the crescendo, and he shall reign forever and ever. And as the final hallelujah was sounded, the singers raised their hands to heaven and then dispersed into the crowd in which they had come. The the Niagara Mall Hallelujah Chorus is an instance of the flash mob phenomenon that has become popular in recent years. A flash mob is a carefully planned and even choreographed performance of art, often singing or dancing that is staged in a public place with the appearance of spontaneity. As the author of of Psalm 47 sees it, the Hallelujah Chorus flash mob is an example that ought to be followed by all peoples at all times. The spontaneous lifting of hearts to the praise of the great King. Psalm 47, 1 through 2 says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy for the Lord, the Most High, is a great king over all the earth. The theme of Psalm 47 is the sovereignty of God. Verse 7 of Psalm 47 says that the Lord is to be praised as a king of all the earth. And kings are sovereign in that allegiance is due to them by their subjects. And since God is the creator and the Lord over all the earth, every human being owes him obedience and faith. R.C. Sproul says, as sovereign, God is the supreme authority of heaven and earth. He created the universe. He owns the universe. His ownership gives him certain rights. He may do with the universe as is pleasing to his holy, pleasing will. In fact, we can say that to the extent that people even think about God, they tend to conceive of him as some distant spectator of worldly affairs, taking no role in it. In fact, even a recent study by Lifeway Research in conjunction with Lifeway Ministries suggested to us that approximately 40% of professing Christians think that God changes his mind. This particular view is called is called open theism, and it is considered heresy. And I don't use that term lightly because Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And heresy is those things that are not only outside the Bible, that's error, but heresy is those things that are outside of the Bible and outside what the church has taught. Open theism is heresy. You see, the Bible presents a far different picture than a distant than God as a distant spectator of worldly affairs, having no direct role in it. He, the Bible presents the royal authority of God reigning with His supernatural sovereign power. Psalm one thirty five six says, "Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the sea and all the deeps." God is not aloof or uninterested in the earth, earth's affairs. Psalm twenty two twenty eight says, Kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And the Bible extends God's sovereign control to the individual affairs of every person, including you and me. Jesus said that not even a sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the Father's will, and that even the hairs on your head are numbered under God's sovereign control in Matthew 10, 28 to 30. 
In fact, we can say that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is not popular with people today because they want to worship themselves. They believe that they are the sovereign. We wish to declare with William Ernest Henley in his famous 1888 poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And yet God refutes this vanity, declaring himself to be the master of fates and the captain of souls. Deuteronomy 32:39 says, I kill and make, I make live, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver me out of my hand. I am the Lord and there is no other, he insists. I form and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things, Isaiah 45, 6-7 declares. 1 Samuel 2, 7 says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Now, divine sovereignty does not mean that people do not exercise wills and even make decisions. For the Lord teaches that man has a true will, though fallen and enslaved to sin. They are still responsible for their behavior and their actions. God's will is yet achieved in all things, even in and through the sinful acts of wicked people. Lamentations 3, 37 through 38, Jeremiah says this, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord commanded it, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Kings exercise their rule by way of royal proclamations sent throughout the land. God likewise rules by sovereign decree, that is, by divine determination. Psalm 47, 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. From that vaunted throne of the divine determination or the decree of God, he accomplishes his holy will. Paul teaches, for instance, that believers are in Christ. They are saved by God's eternal decree, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Ephesians 1.11, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, sets forth the divine decree of God as a sovereign over all things, saying, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purposes. Now, according to the psalmist, God's unrestrained sovereignty extends to all peoples, whether they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. He indicates that universal lordship by naming God as both Yahweh, seen in English Bibles as the Lord, the covenant name that God gave for the use of his people Israel, and the Most High, a more generic name that would seem to be used by unbelievers. With both names, the psalmist is declaring the sovereign deity of Israel's God, and since he is the sovereign God, the psalmist, the psalm sounds a very universal summons to praise, even from those who may not be the Lord's people in Psalm 47, 1, which says, Clap your hands, all people, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Now, the psalmist praises God especially for his sovereignty in judging his enemies and saving his people. He says this in Psalm 47, verse 3, He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. And this statement refers to Israel's conquest of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, which involved God's vengeful judgment on the godless people previously occupying the land. 
And the imagery of having people under one's feet, it refers to the ancient practice of placing one's foot on the throat of captives conquered in battle. Israel's victory did not result from any power or virtue of her own, but was the sovereign act of God in judging his foes. He subdued the peoples under us. Such judgment not only happened during Israel's conquest of Canaan, it continues to take place throughout history so that all men and all women should praise and even fear God who is sovereign in judging sin and evil. In 1961, uh, Arnold Toynbee concluded his massive project, A Study of History, which began in 1934. Tombi identified 34 distinct civilizations, noting that in each successive rose, fell, and then they passed away. Egypt was a great early power, but has long since fallen from imperial might. Babylon once lorded over much of the earth, but is now a barren desert. Greece and Rome rose as successive marvels, but they both fell into ruin and were conquered. More recently, the Soviet Union surged into power for nearly a century before crumbling in turn. James Montgomery Boyce says, even the United States of America, though now at the very pinnacle of world power, is in decline and will not escape the inexorable law of history, namely that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people, Proverbs 14.34. And on the other hand, these powers have believed themselves to be sovereign over all the earth, but have, but have learned the truth of Psalm 47, 7, God is the king of all the earth. You see, history shows that when nations pursue righteousness in accordance with the revealed will of God and the word of God, they usually thrive and they even gain power. Not that any nation or even any person perfectly fulfills God's law so as to be made righteous by its works. And yet nations are generally honest that respect life and cultivate virtue will usually experience a corresponding blessing under the sovereign uh, providence of God. And on the other hand, history shows us that nations founded on greed and fleshly want and passion, pursuing wickedness and even violence, will fall into ruin, however great they once thought them to, themselves to be. And the lesson here is that God's judgment on the nations should cause us to praise the Lord and to fear Him. Fearing God means we respect his sovereign word and tremble to rebel or even disobey his commands. Psalm 47, 2 says, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. In fact, the fear of God is a lesson taught by Sinatra, the Assyrian conqueror who took the title of great king for himself in Isaiah 36, 4. Senator raised his power against Jerusalem, causing the Jewish king Hezekiah to kneel before God, seeking his protection. Hezekiah addressed God as the great king, praying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and the earth. Isaiah 37, 16 tells us. And now in answer to Hezekiah's prayer, the Lord slew the entire Assyrian army of 185,000 soldiers. And afterwards, Sennacherib was killed. His claim to sovereignty was then debunked. And second, Hezekiah shows us that however much its worldly detractors may loathe the idea, the sovereignty of God is a source of joy and even comfort for the people of God. 
Just as God saved Jerusalem, our salvation is established by God's eternal decree and upheld by the sovereign might of God. Psalm 47, 4 celebrates the sovereign grace of God, saying this, He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. And this statement refers to God's gift of Canaan, a land of milk and honey that we see in Exodus 3, 8, to the inheritance of his people. Within Canaan, the Lord portioned out uh, the land to be a heritage for every tribe, clan, and family. And this inheritance was the pride and the joy of Israel and a symbol of the love of God. And as redemptive history advanced with the coming of Christ, we see that the promised land was symbolic of the whole landscape of salvation that comes to us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Israel's land and Canaan, our blessings in salvation are God's sovereign heritage and gift to us. In fact, the New Testament explains God's sovereign grace as the source of our salvation. So that salvation begins with the eternal predestination of God, of a chosen people, who are effectually called to faith in Christ through the power of his word, and who as a result are justified, sanctified, and glorified. Romans 8.30 says, uh, Paul says this in Romans 8.30, that those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And just as the Old Testament Jew could celebrate how God chose our heritage for us in the promised land, Paul locates our blessings in Jesus Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Now, this same sovereign saving grace animates in our, our text before us in Psalm 47. For not only does God's sovereignty and salvation give us comfort and even hope, but it also motivates us to the great saving king. Romans 11.36 says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. The psalmist echoes this call, extolling the sovereignty of God in both judgment and salvation. In Psalm 47, 1 through 2, which says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord, the Most High, is a great king over all the earth. Now, the setting of our psalm in Psalm 47 is revealed in Psalm 47, 5, which says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord, with the sound of a trumpet. And scholars believe that this verse refers to an annual festival that celebrated the Lord's enthronement with the procession of the Ark of the Covenant uh, up to the temple. And it's possible that this psalm even refers to the first coming of the ark, the footstool of the throne of God on earth into Jerusalem during the time of David. And this setting fits Psalm 47's theme of Israel subduing the promised land, a multi-generational event that concluded when David captured Jerusalem and brought up God's throne up to Mount Zion. Moreover, the Hebrew of verse 5 has the identical wording of 2 Samuel 6.15, which says, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And so Psalm 47 seems to have been composed in response to this event or in later years to remember David's enthronement of God's ark on Mount Zion. 
And as God's people celebrate the ascension of the Lord to his throne over, over the earth, we are reminded that God's sovereignty is cause for great joy. To have God reigning is to enjoy great blessing so that none who look to the Lord in faith will ever have cause to be disappointed. And this is especially true under the gospel of our Lord. As C.F. Keel notes, the true and the final victory of the Lord consists not in a submission that is brought about by war and bloodshed and in consternation that stupefies the mind, but in a change in the mind and the heart of the people so that they render joyful worship unto him. And Christians see a parallel to that the bringing up of the ark to Jerusalem and the ascension of Jesus of his sovereign throne in heaven and seeing our savior enthroned above it brings joy to our worship and it spurs us to offer praise to the name of god as paul says in ephesians 1 22 god put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church psalm 47 describes five descriptions of praise that should characterize all of our worship First Israel, praise to God was joyful and exuberant. Psalm 47, 1 says, clap your hands, all peoples. The psalm begins, shout to God with loud songs of joy. And having seen this call to exuberance, we should probably lament the difference between worship services today and the scene described in Psalm 47. Now, the psalm does not describe the regular gatherings of the life of the Israelites for worship. It describes a special and even a celebratory festival. And in the original event, when King David brought the ark into Jerusalem, he leapt and he danced before the ark as it advanced into the city. The symbolic act performed on a unique occasion by the unique person who was a type and a forerunner of the Messiah does not establish a warrant for the worshipful dance in our churches today. And even so, Psalm 47's call for festival reverly does not mandate shouting and loud clapping in our worship services any more than for Israel's regular worship gatherings in the Old Testament times did. And still, on the other hand, the psalm does not rule out spontaneous shouts of amen or expressions of spiritual excitement. And nonetheless, in light of God's sovereign grace, our worship ought to never be dour, not to ever be dour or or dull, or detached. Christians gather as those who have every reason to rejoice, and therefore spiritual delight ought to be evident in our worship. The shout of God's people, the blasting of trumpets, brought down the walls of Jericho when Israel entered the Promised Land in Joshua 6.20, shouting, and the blowing of horns accompanying the crowning of Israel's kings. In 1 Kings 1.39, Jesus will return to earth with the sounding of the trumpet, 1 Corinthians 15:52 tells us and the shouting of newly <coughs> um, and the shouting of newly resurrected mouse Christians should hear that trumpet whenever the gospel is preached or even sung and the clamor of God's grace in our hearts ought to produce joyful excitement in worship you see true worship is joyful and second true worship is reverent and all filled Many people today think that one can either be joyful or reverent, but the Bible joins them together. Psalm 211 goes on to urge us to rejoice with trembling. We fear and we tremble at the majesty of the glory of God and we rejoice over his grace and his tender mercy. Reverence is expressed in gathered worship that is in accordance with the word of God. 
And this too was taught by David when he brought up the Ark of Jerusalem. His first attempt ended in disaster because David failed to consult the scriptures. A group of Levites were bringing the Ark of the Covenant up on an ox cart. And when the Ark tottered, one of the priests, Uzziah, studied it with his hand. And in response, the holy God struck Uzziah dead for daring to touch his holy throne with an unholy hand in 2 Samuel 6, 6-7. Now David realized his error. He consulted God's instructions for worship and only then was able to lead, uh, succeed in bringing up the ark. And the writer of Hebrews urges us to do the same, saying in Hebrews 12, 28-29, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Third, Christians are to worship God with skillful music. We see this in Psalm 47, 6, which four times exhorts us to sing before the Lord saying, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. The Hebrew word tamor, it encompasses both singing and the skillful playing of music. Now, not all Christians may have voices that they consider attractive or have the talent to play musical instruments, but every recipient of grace has a song to sing and should joyfully offer music to God's praise in Christ. According to the book of Revelation, believers will be singing God's glory in heaven. And Psalm 7 is telling us to start singing now. William Plummer points out how closely the singing of praises is connected with the lively state of our life in Christ. And fourth, we're called to worship the Lord thoughtfully. And we see this at the end of Psalm 47, 7, which the English Standard Version renders, sing praises with a psalm. The King James Version calls us to praise with understanding. The original Hebrew states that we are to sing a maskal. We have encountered this term in the superscriptions of some of the previous psalms of the sons of Korah in Psalm 42, Psalm 44, and Psalm 45. And while the precise meaning is not known, many scholars believe that a maskal is a song of instruction, since the root word contains the idea of wisdom and skill. And as Jesus emphasized to his disciples, believers are not to offer mindless praise to the Lord in our worship, which is what the pagans do in their prayers, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 7. Instead, we must approach God in terms of clear biblical truth, and therefore our music must be biblical in terms of its doctrinal content. Thoughtful worship does not have to be academic or overly intellectual. Murdoch Campbell relates a visit to a believing friend who was drawing near to his death. His friend recounted the day of his conversion to faith in Christ, calling it that wonderful morning when God transported his soul into the ocean of his love. The man's mind drifted away and Campbell could tell that his heart had turned to worshiping God. And as the man silently relished his blessing in Christ, his voice could be heard softly repeating, wonderful, wonderful. And so also should our praise, both privately and together as a church, revel in the wonders revealed to us in the holy word of God. Campbell writes, God's people praise and adore him for what he is in his own essential being. They praise him for his love revealed in the gift and in the work of his dear son, Jesus, and for rescuing their souls from eternal death. They praise him for those fuller enjoyments of his love awaiting them in the world to come. 
And lastly, Psalm 47 insists that praise is to be offered to the Lord universally. In other words, everyone is to worship the king who is enthroned over all the nations. And now it is with this principle in mind that this psalm concludes not with a command, but with a prophecy in Psalm 47, 9, which says the princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. And now Psalm 47, it began with a call to all the peoples to clap and to shout for the, before the Lord. And it ends with a promise that believers from all the peoples will gather as one as the people of the God of Abraham. And the expression, the princes of the people, it refers to believers who serve as representatives of their tribes and their nations before the Lord God. And it may indicate that the Lord is able to overcome the leader's opposition to him and subdue their hearts with the grace of God in Christ. In 1820, the first Christian missionaries landed in the Hawaiian Islands. Up to that time, the Hawaiians had been a violent people engaged in constant tribal conflict and strife, offering human sacrifices to appease the goddess of the threatening volcano. And the power of the gospel penetrated this warlike culture when the king of Hawaii was suddenly converted, opening the door to preaching and mass conversions throughout the islands. Psalm 47.9 says, The shields of the earth belong to God. And through the power of the grace of God, the shields and the spears of Hawaii were laid down at the feet of the Lord and the Savior King, and the Hawaiians became the gentle people we associate with a lovely aloha spirit. All the resources of might on the earth, including rulers, are at the disposal of God, and no power can stand against His sovereign will for salvation. In fact, it's heartwarming for us to realize that a psalm that praises God for his sovereignty comes at its climax in the worship of the God from the lips of sinners redeemed by his grace. God's ancient promise to Abraham will be fulfilled when the gospel of Christ has run its course throughout all of history. Genesis 12, 2-3 says, I will make of you a great nation, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And with the fulfillment of that promise, as all the redeemed gathered together as the people of the God of Abraham, God's sovereign power is proved again and again. And more than that, we celebrate the sovereign mercy that he has bestowed on a vast multitude from all the nations who gathered forever to sing the praise of our Savior, King and Lord. And because of God's sovereign grace for sinners, the psalmist concludes that he is highly exalted in Psalm 47.9. And in light of this prophecy, you see why the Niagara Hallelujah Chorus flash mob so well depicted in Psalm 47 in its spontaneous and expanding praise to our sovereign God. The words of Handel's Messiah will literally become true. Revelation 11:15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This universal praise was anticipated in the food court that where that chorus was sung, the choir growing continually as the song went forward and starting with one singer and then a few others who were watching began standing up and even joining in. This is exactly how the prophetic vision of Psalm 47 is taking place in history. And in the end, Christ will be exalted throughout all the earth. But the choir of his praise grows one at a time as a song of the gospel is spread from one voice to another. Have you joined in that glorious chorus, believing on Jesus, so as to lift your praise to him as the sovereign reigning king of heaven? If you have, is yours a joy of witness, inspiring others to join in? 
In fact, we can go back to Psalm 2 and we can see the, the raging and even the plotting of the nations. And the plotting is, is them meditating, murmuring, talking to themselves, making plans to rebel against the God, the great king that we have considered today. And remember in Psalm 1 that the blessed man is the one, Psalm 1-2 tells us, meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. That meditation is on the 66 books that constitute the word of God. And so now what we see in this psalm is that it's not only a matter, our, our reading and our study of God's word is not only a matter of, of of just filling our minds with God's truth, that it leads to somewhere. It leads us to the worship of God, to declaring his greatness, to declaring his majesty and his love and his greatness and his grace and the character and the attributes of God because he is sovereign, because he reigns over all of history, because he is good and just and perfect and holy. And yet, even so, the wicked, as Psalm 2 tells us, they, they plot in vain. That means that even in the midst of plotting rebellion against God, the king, as we've considered from Psalm 47, God is going to be glorified. God is going to be worshipped. And this brings us to Philippians 2, 8 through 10, which very clearly tells us that Every person from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, all will bow and, and honor the Lord, whether they're saved or not saved. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians 2, 8 through 10 tells us. And that is, that is actually in the midst, if you think about it, in the midst of our times, in the midst of a time of great uncertainty, that should steady our hearts on Jesus Christ, the, as Hebrews 12 tells us, the author and the finisher of our faith. We have so much reason in the midst of all that's happening. God is good. He is holy. He is just. He is perfect. And don't you know that uh, in Titus 1-2, God says that he never lies. That means that God will always act with his revealed will in the word of God, God will always act according to who he is and what he's like. That is profound encouragement for us as the people of God. If you are in Christ, that is an encouragement to your heart to rejoice as James 1, 2 through 3 tells you in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. What is patience? Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, that patience is a fruit of the spirit. Those are those things that, that God, by his grace, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you're in Christ, he's producing patience in the midst of trials. This even still is a matter of worship. And even in the midst of this, Hebrews 4, 15 tells us that the Lord is a very present help in time of need. As we've even considered from Psalm 42, 40 and 42, the Lord is our help. So we can call on him and he will help us, as Hebrews 4.15 says. And in all of this, God is to be praised. He is good. He is holy. He is just. 
And this also means something as well. If you don't know the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you are doing exactly what Psalm 2 says. You are raging against the nations and you are plotting in vain. Because there is only one king, all, every single person will bow before this king, whether it's in this life or when they stand before the throne of God. That is why the Bible again and again tells us that now is the hour, today is the day to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. And if you've never done that, I played with you on the basis of 2 Corinthians 5 and Acts 16.31 to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. And yet still, as we've considered today, there is great encouragement. There is great hope for those who are in Christ, those who belong to him. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You see, if you are in Christ, you have the incredible encouragement. You have a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 15 says, you have one in Jesus who is the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus. He is the one who teaches you the truth about the, from the word by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is the greater priest. He is a greater priest than Aaron because he is the one who came and under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that you justly deserve in your place and for your sin. And he is now your intercessor. He is now your mediator. He is now your high priest. Oh, and he is your coming king. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Jesus is your prophet, priest, and king. And that means that you should worship him for all that he is and grow in your understanding, dear Christian, of, of his word and of his grace and of his mercy as revealed in the word of God. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. And we thank you that you teach us and that you instruct us by your word. As Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So, Lord, we are reminded today that we have one in Jesus who is the greater prophet, the greater priest, the greater king. And so, Lord, may our hearts be full of joy, of reverence and worship and awe of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And may we not only remind ourselves of these things as we go throughout our week, but may we rehearse them again and again and again in our hearts and our minds. And may you take this word now that we have heard and may you plant it deep in the soil bed of our hearts that it may not land on rocky soil, that it may land on the fertile soil of a heart that rests in the sufficiency of Christ revealed in the word. So we thank you, Lord, that your word is true. We thank you, Lord, that you aim to take your word and that it will accomplish all that it aims to do because you are, you stand behind your word and your spirit uses the faithful preaching and the teaching of your word. So we thank you, Lord, for these truths and for these realities. Help us now to take these things that we've heard and may our response be one of worship. May we be full of joy. May you lead us closer to yourselves as we humble ourselves before you in acknowledgement of our great need of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' precious name, 
We pray, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.